in the name of our infinitely worthy Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. May he multiply his grace and peace to you, and may the God and love, of, love and peace be with you tonight. As we saw in our first address, the Westminster Shorter Catechism begins its description of God by employing the word spirit to describe the God of Christianity. God is a spirit, it tells us. A statement we suggested that probably should be phrased in light of the context of the biblical verse from which it is drawn, God is spirit. That is to say, God is tripersonal and non-corporeal. And therefore, his nature will never, ever be fully comprehensible to us. The Shorter Catechism then modifies that phrase with three adjectives. In my seminary classes on the board, I say, God is spirit. I write the word spirit. Then I say, and that word spirit is modified by infinite, eternal, and unchangeable. Then I say, following that, is the prepositional phrase, in his being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. All which means what this descriptive definition of God intends to declare is this, that the triune God of the Bible and of biblical Christianity exists as a tripersonal, non-corporeal being who is infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his being, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his wisdom, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his power, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his holiness, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his justice, infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his goodness, and infinite, eternal, and unchangeable in his truth. Before we take up the topic of this evening's second address, I think it's necessary to make two observations about the Shorter Catechism's definition of God. First, when the Shorter Catechism speaks of God's infinite eternal and unchangeable being, wisdom, power, holiness, justice, goodness, and truth. It is speaking of attributes that comprise what the scriptures sum up by one word, and that is the glory of God. The catechism is simply describing the glory of God by its definition of God. That is to say, God's glory is the sum total of all of his attributes, which is just to say that the glory of God is just the inescapable weight of the sheer godness of God. And for the creature, whether angel or man, to seek to arrogate to himself any one of God's attributes and thereby to attempt to become like God, as did Adam, is to attack the very glory of God by attempting to make himself equal with God. Or for the creature to seek to deny to God any one of his attributes is also to attack the glory of God, for it would deny to him that without which he would no longer be God. Or for the creature to ascribe to him any attribute that he himself does not expressly declare he possesses is equally to attack his glory, for such an attribution will be inevitably erroneous and implies that the creature knows God as well as God knows himself and knows him apart from revelation which is an idolatrous absurdity, not to say impossibility. Therefore, it is absolutely essential. Indeed, it is a vital imperative for our spiritual health 
that we who desire to know what God is like should always listen carefully to God's description of himself in Holy Scripture alone. Submit our hearts to that description without murmuring against it. Endeavor to live our lives in accordance with it and worship him in a way that befits his revealed perfections, that is, with reverence and awe. And speaking of such worship, I want to state categorically this evening that in my opinion, the intrusion into the contemporary church of the superficial, flippant worship styles that abound everywhere today with their applause for the church's performers and their sappy contemporary music is not and should never have been regarded as simply a matter of cultural preference. Rather, as an infusion, as an infusion of the popular culture into the church, it is a symptom of what A.W. Tozer describes in his book, The Knowledge of the Holy, as it's a symptom of this. The church, uh, the symptom of the loss of the concept of the majesty of God from the popular religious mind. A.W. Tozer writes, The church has surrendered her once lofty concept of God and has substituted for it one so low, so ignoble, as to be unworthy of thinking, worshiping men. The low view of God entertained almost universally among Christians today, this is still Tozier, is the cause of a hundred lesser evils everywhere among us. A whole new philosophy of the Christian life has resulted from this one basic error in our religious thinking. What is that? The loss of the majesty of God from the Christian mind. With our loss of the sense of majesty has come the further loss of religious awe and consciousness of the divine presence. We have lost our spirit of worship and our ability to meet God in adoring silence. Modern Christianity, this is still A.W. Tozer, modern Christianity is simply not producing the kind of Christian who can appreciate or experience the words, be still and know that I am God. These words mean next to nothing to the self-confident, bustling worshiper in this century. End of quote. This is a dreadfully serious situation due to the fact that idolatry, my beloved, idolatry does not consist merely in bowing in adoration before man-made images. The essence of idolatry, listen, the essence of idolatry is the entertainment of any thoughts about God as true that are not worthy of him. Shall I repeat that? The essence of idolatry is the entertainment of any thoughts about God as true that are not worthy of him. And the major cause of this loss and its resultant idolatry is the failure of preachers to preach on the biblical attributes of God, thereby allowing their people by their silence to acquire and entertain thoughts about God that the Bible does not endorse. I believe the debate that rages in the church today over worship styles, whether worship should be traditional or contemporary, liturgical or non-liturgical, formal or revivalistic, would disappear overnight if the church at large recovered her once lofty concept of the majesty of the living God. Were that to occur, many worship leaders 
would know great shamefacedness because of their shallow, self-willed, irreverent styles of worship. For the triune God of Holy Scripture, my beloved, is an absolutely sovereign, transcendently holy, infinitely righteous, incomprehensible deity, perfections that ought to inspire awe and humility and reverence in the creature. But he will not be known as such or served as such by a people fed with inane choruses, poorly written gospel tunes, silly unscriptural prayers, and mediocre revivalistic preaching. God is to be worshipped with renewed minds. Faith in him requires understanding, and that understanding grows primarily in our congregations as they are nourished by the singing of the biblical psalms and doctrinally sound hymns, by serious prayers of adoration, confession, thanksgiving, and supplication, and by the solid preaching of our Reformed public worship services. Therefore, we cannot adopt forms of worship that are theologically shallow and expect to gain or to retain a biblically sound understanding of God. Hence, the antidote to all the problems in contemporary worship will be found in the church's recovery of the awesome majesty of God. As this is being accomplished, the quality and the content of the music in our public worship will become different. The content of the public prayers in our public worship will become different. And the preaching in our public worship will become different. And as a result, Christians' lives will become different as well. My beloved, I said earlier to a member in the church here, he said, I asked him how he was doing, he said, this is the first day of the rest of my life. And I said to him, well, then let's begin tonight to change the world. And this is one way, this is how we have to do it. Second, as we urged in our first address, we must continually bear in mind as we discuss the attributes of God that what we affirm throughout, throughout of God as of God, what we affirm throughout of God per se, we are affirming equally of God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. That is to say, the shorter catechism definition of God is a definition of the triune God, the three persons of which are, as the sixth question of the shorter catechism declares, one God, the same in substance, equal in power and glory. Let us now invoke the blessings of this God upon what we say this evening about this particular attribute of God, which is this address's subject. Let's pray together. Almighty and triune God, who dwells in that transcendently holy light that no man can approach in his natural state and live, but who keeps covenant to the thousandth generation of those who love you. This evening we thank you that we can know you savingly, even in the midst of our knowledge of our own unworthiness and sin, and even as we know that when the desires of your great heart have been so freely opened to us, we have been so slow to worship you in spirit and in truth, with reverence and with awe. Tonight we thank you for the mighty truths that you will flash even if only momentarily before our eyes from Holy Scripture. We pray for your gracious presence in our lives that drawn by the sweetness of your grace and the bliss of your beauty, we may turn our eyes and hearts away from the deceptive and dying but oh so alluring lights of this world. May we know you enough to long after you 
and longing for you, may we learn to know you even better. Grant us such heart desire for you that our greatest passion in life will be to know you better than we know anyone or anything else in this world and to enjoy you more than we enjoy anyone or anything else in this world, more than our spouses, more than our children, more than our homes, more than our jobs. Give us, while we appear before you now, acknowledging the depth and the greatness of our own unworthiness and of our many sins and shortcomings, give us, I pray, the awareness of the great ocean of your presence sweeping over us. Be with us throughout these sessions as we think about your glorious perfections. Remove our ignorance. Grant us understanding that you are the Lord who is kind and just and righteous. And we ask all this, Through Jesus Christ, our Lord. Amen. In this second address, my beloved, I want us to consider God's infinity in being. That is, his omnipresence. Listen now to the following selection of verses that teach this divine attribute. Will God really dwell on the earth? The heavens, even the highest heaven, cannot contain you. How much less this temple I have built. Where can I go from your spirit? Where can I flee from your presence? If I go up to the heavens, you are there. If I make my bed in the depths, you are there. If I rise on the wings of the dawn, if I settle on the far side of the sea, Even there, your hand will guide me. Your right hand will hold me fast. The eyes of the Lord are everywhere, keeping watch on the wicked and the good. Though you, Edom, soar aloft like the eagle, though your nest is set among the stars, from there I will bring you down, says the Lord. Though apostate Israel should dig deep to the depths of the grave, from there my hand will take them. Though they climb up to the heavens, from there I will bring them down. Though they hide themselves on the top of Carmel, there I will hunt them and seize them. Though they hide from me at the bottom of the sea, there I will command the serpent to bite them. Though they are driven into exile by their enemies, There I will command the sword to slay them. Am I only a God nearby, declares the Lord, and not a God far away? Can anyone hide in secret places so that I cannot see him, declares the Lord? Do not I fill heaven and earth, declares the Lord. God is not far from each of us. For in him we live and move and have our being. I think it is entirely appropriate to suggest, as we begin, that in the context of the shorter catechism definition of God, it is rather certain that by its description of God as infinite in his being, the framers of the catechism, because they say nothing about God's attribute of omnipresence, Elsewhere, anywhere else in their definition, it's, I think, appropriate to say that they intended to teach here that God is omnipresent. That is to say that God transcends all spatial limitations and is immediately and entirely present in every square inch of his creation and therefore that everything and everybody are immediately in his presence. Let's develop this. What exactly are we saying when we say that God is omnipresent? We are saying not only that all things are immediately in God's presence, which is true enough, but also that God himself is present with his whole being in every place outside of himself. 
to put it as simply as I know how, God is everywhere. All things are immediately in his presence, which means never do we have any privacy. Never have you ever had a private conversation. Never, never, never. His presence is inescapable. Everywhere there is God. His being, his self-revelation, his sovereignty, his activities, his prerogatives, his scrutiny. He is everywhere. He is in all the particulars of creation, in all the events of providence, and in all his works of grace. And try as they might, even self-acclaimed atheists cannot escape him, for in their heart of hearts they know God. Robert Browning, in his famous poem, Bishop Blogram's Apology, poetically yet powerfully states the atheist problem in this way. And now what are we? Unbelievers both, calm and complete, determinately fixed, today, tomorrow, and forever pray? You'll guarantee me that? Not so, I think. Make it bear fruit to us. The problem here is this. Just when we are safest, In our atheism, there's a sunset touch, a fancy from a flower bell, someone's death, a chorus ending from Euripides, and that's enough for for 50 hopes and fears as old and new at once as nature's self to rap and knock and enter into our souls. No, self-avowed atheists cannot escape God because, as Calvin says, God himself has implanted in all men a certain understanding of his divine majesty with the result that a sense of deity is inscribed in the hearts of all, a haunting awareness that self-acclaimed atheists never lose For, as Calvin says, however much they struggle against their own senses and wish not only to drive God thence but also to destroy him in heaven, their stupidity never increases to the point where God does not at times bring them back to his mercy seat, to his judgment seat. But while God is in every specific place, yet neither is he confined by any of these places, For no matter how expansive they may be, they cannot confine him. Solomon, you will recall, declared in his dedication prayer, heaven, even the highest heaven, cannot contain. Nor does God relate the same way to every place outside of himself, but rather he relates and acts differently depending upon the place under consideration. Burkhoff rightly declares that God is not present in the same sense in all his creatures. The nature of his indwelling is in harmony with that of his creatures. He does not dwell on earth as he does in heaven, in animals as he does in man, in the inorganic as he does in the organic creation, in the wicked as he does in the pious, nor in the church as he does in Christ. There is an endless variety in the manner in which God is imminent in his creatures, end of quote. But what about hell? Is God present in hell? Is not, what, is not what makes hell the place that it is, the very absence of God? Does not Paul teach in 2 Thessalonians 1.9 that those who suffer eternal perdition will be excluded from the presence of the Lord? Yes, Paul says this, but I am quite certain that he intended their exclusion to be an exclusion away from the approving presence of the Lord and not from the presence of the Lord per se, 
For John informs us in Revelation 14 that the impenitent will be tormented in fire in the presence of the holy angels and in the presence of the Lamb. Paul's statement illustrates what I mean when I say that God acts differently depending upon the place of his manifested presence. In hell, God manifests his presence, but in a disapproving manner. He is present there as a condemning judge. And throughout eternity, the impenitent sinner must always behold, as doubtless the most solemn aspect of hell itself, what C.S. Lewis refers to somewhere as the disapproving, lidless, unblinking eye of the wrathful God reproachfully staring at him. So we would affirm, first, that at all places of his manifested presence out of himself, he is present to sustain, as in the case of Christ upholding the entire universe, even as he hung upon the tree. My brothers and sisters, if God for even a nanosecond, that is one billionth part of a second, should withhold his sustaining presence from this universe, it and everything in it would in that instant collapse and disappear. Second, we should affirm that at some places of his manifested presence out of himself, he is disapprovingly present to punish sin, such as at the Genesis flood, the destruction of Sodom and Gomorrah, supremely at Calvary, the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70, and finally in hell. And we should affirm thirdly that it's still other places of his manifested presence outside of himself. Thank God he is present to bless. Particularly in this category, present to bless. It pleased God to dwell incarnationally in Jesus Christ for us men and for our salvation, to manifest his indwelling presence in believers in and by the person of the Holy Spirit, and to be near his own in their times of trial and trouble. He is also with us at death, even though I walk through the valley of the shadow of death, David declared, I will fear no evil, for you are with me. And God himself promised When you pass through the waters, I will be with you. Yes, when you pass through the waters, they will not sweep over you. And in the place the Bible calls the new heaven and new earth, God has chosen fully, ultimately, and finally to manifest his approving presence to his children. This present to bless category pervades scripture and is set forth in terms of virtually every preposition human language has to offer. God is with us, around us, in us, in the midst of us, behind us, underneath us, over us, near us, and before us. All of those have scripture verses to support them. But in whatever respect he is in all of these places, he is holy there, as much in empty space as in every molecule of the solid granite mountain that contains no crack or fissure at all, as much in the lowest hell as in the highest heaven, as much among the sinful hosts of demons and men as among the blissful choir of immaculate angelic singers who never displeased him. For in him we and all other created existences live and move and have our being. I must now make a cautionary comment. It is this. The fact of God's omnipresence, this has to do with biblical interpretation. The fact of God's omnipresence precludes our taking literally the biblical descriptions of God's ascendings and descendings 
his comings and his goings literally. God being everywhere present does not literally come from or go to specific places. Where such language is employed in scripture, it must be recognized for what it is. Metaphorical language indicating or invoking a special manifestation of God's working presence either in judgment or in grace. And since all that we say about God's nature per se is equally true with regard to each of the persons of the triune Godhead, this conclusion has special implications with regard to the meaning of both God the Son's incarnation and God the Holy Spirit's so-called coming into the world at Pentecost. Permit me to work this last bit out a little bit more in detail. Being omnipresent as God, God the Son did not literally come into the world 2,000 years ago in the sense of coming to a place where he as God was not present before. Nor should the event of the incarnation be interpreted to mean that the second person of the Godhead divested himself of his divine attribute of omnipresence when he assumed our humanity. On more than one occasion in my capacity as invited lecturer, I have asked gatherings of evangelical pastors the following question. After the incarnation had occurred, did the second person of the Holy Trinity still possess the attribute of omnipresence, or was he confined to the human body of Jesus? More of them than I would like to report opted for the latter construction, arguing, they say, that the very word incarnation means in flesh. Of course, if their choice were true, It would mean that God the Son divested himself of his attribute of being always and everywhere immediately present in his created universe. But divine attributes are not characteristics of God that are separate and distinct from his essence that he can lay aside like one might remove a garment of clothing at the end of a busy day and still be the same God. To hold that God the Son actually divested himself in his incarnate state of humiliation of even one divine attribute is tantamount to contending that he who enfleshed himself as Jesus of Nazareth, while perhaps more than man, is not quite God either. And Bishop Mole pointed out long ago that a Savior not quite God is a bridge broken at the farther end. We must therefore construe the event of the incarnation as an event of addition, not subtraction, without ceasing to be all that he is as God. God the Son took into union with himself something he had never possessed before, a human nature. The event of the incarnation means to convey the fact that God the Son uniquely manifested himself to the world and to man in and by his personal presence in human flesh. It intends to affirm that God the Son, through the instrumentality of the miraculous virginal conception, took into union with himself our human nature in such a real and vital sense that we properly declare that Jesus of Nazareth was and is not only fully human, but also fully God at the same time manifest in the flesh. We must not for a second, therefore, intend to suggest that God the Son somehow divested himself of his omnipresence, when he became a man. Cyril of Alexandria, who led the Orthodox opposition 
to Nestorius at the Council of Ephesus in AD 431, in a letter to Nestorius writes, listen, the eternal word subjected himself to birth for us and came forth man from a woman without casting off that which he was. Although he assumed flesh and blood, he remained what he was, God in essence and in truth. Neither do we say that his flesh was changed into the nature of divinity, nor that the ineffable nature of the word of God was laid aside for the nature of the flesh. For he is unchanged and absolutely unchangeable, being the same always according to the scriptures. For although visible in a child in swaddling clothes, and even in the bosom of his virgin mother, he filled all creation as God, and was a fellow ruler with him who begat him. For the Godhead is without quantity and dimensions and cannot have limits. Some 20 years later, in A.D. 451, the Council of Chalcedon, whose creedal labors produced the Christological definition that with its four great adverbs of negation fixed the orthodox boundaries of all future discussions, declared that Jesus possessed two natures without confusion, without change, without division, without separation, the distinctiveness of the natures being by no means removed because of the union, but the properties of each nature being preserved. John Calvin was hardly heterodox then, as the radical Lutherans of the Reformation sarcastically charged by their contemptuous term extra-Calvinisticum, meaning that extra-Calvin thing, when he wrote, this is from his institutes, quote, another absurdity, namely that if the word of God became incarnate, he must have been confined within the narrow prison of an earthly body, is sheer impudence. For even if the word in his immeasurable essence united with the nature of man into one person, we do not imagine that he was confined therein. Here is something marvelous. The Son of God descended from heaven in such a way that without leaving heaven, he willed to be born in the virgin's womb, to go about the earth, to hang upon the cross, and yet he continually filled the earth, even as he had done from the beginning. In the Heidelberg Catechism, grants explicit reform creedal status to this position. It declares in question 48, since Christ's godhood is illimitable and omnipresent, it must follow that it is beyond the bounds of the human nature it has assumed, and yet nonetheless is in this human nature and remains personally united to it. And all of this must be said equally about the Holy Spirit's coming on the day of Pentecost. He did not come into the world on the day of Pentecost. In any sense, it would suggest that he was absent from this world in the Old Testament or that he left some earlier location and came to the upper room where he had not been before. For as God, he too is omnipresent. Rather, his personal presence was simply uniquely manifested in the upper room at Pentecost. His manifested presence there intending to teach us not something about him, I must be quick to point out, but something about the one who sent him. In the simple words of C.H. Dodd, the Holy Spirit's presence in the church is the sign of Christ's present power and glory in heaven. Well, dear friends, this is enough theological exposition, and it's now time for some practical applications, and I'll try to make 
practical applications of all of these attributes to show you that they are not simply um, a waste of our time and we think about them. I'm going to make some practical applications of what we have said about God's omnipresence. I would suggest, and I'll be try to, and I'll try to be brief now, that the fact of God's omnipresence has several specific points of application to aid us as we live out our Christian witness before this watching world. First, our knowledge of God's personal and immediate presence always with us should be an encouragement to us in times of trouble, in times of extraordinarily difficult duties, in times of poverty, in times of deep affliction, in times of sickness and pain and death. When nurses and friends must from their very weariness leave our bedside, he remains still with us. The psalmist rightly states, God is our refuge and our strength, a help in trouble found ever to be. Such knowledge assures us that our God is a God who is near and not a God who is far away from us, that he knows our conditions, having even ordained it, and is working out his perfect will in and by it for his glory and our ultimate good which good, by the way, is not what we may think is good, but rather our conformity to Jesus Christ. I've said to my churches through the years, you will always have a problem with Romans 8.28. What is it? God is working all things together for our good. You will always have problems with that verse. If you reserve the right... To pour into that word good what you think ought to go there. Because you will put into that word good such things as $100,000 in the bank. Drawing 7 or 8, maybe even 10% interest. A home that's paid for. A wife that doesn't nag me. (laughs) Children that never give me any trouble. And he's not going to give you any of those things. You better not pour into that word good what you think ought to go there. You better let him tell you what is the good which he is seeking to accomplish in you. And he tells you that. It is conformity to the image of his own beloved son. That's your highest good in life. Second, our knowledge of his personal and immediate presence always with us should be an encouragement to our prayer life. When we pray to the omnipresent God, we don't have to shout to be heard by him. He's here in our prayer closets, in our bedrooms in the night seasons, nearer to us than the breath we breathe And he hears our every whisper. Indeed, he knows our thoughts, the longings, the agonizings of our heart, even before we verbalize them. And should the object of our prayer be a loved one living 10 or 12,000 miles away on the other side of this earthly globe, because we know that God being omnipresent is with him or her as well, we can ask our Heavenly Father here to care for and to protect our loved one there and to provide our loved one's needs. And we know that he is able in that moment to do so according to his good pleasure. Third, our knowledge of his personal and immediate presence always with us should be a restraint upon our bent to sin. For example, I have more than once reminded young couples from my pulpits through the years, and I urge adults to heed my words as well, because the sin is not known as teenery. It's known as adultery. 
that we must not think, that they must not think, if they park on some desolate lane on some dark moonless night and climb into the back seat of the car, they must not think that they are alone. No. Someone is there with them, watching them, and observing their activity. The young man and the young woman who have illicit sex on that back road are committing an act that is as public to God as if they were committing it before their parents at high noon on Broad Street. As David says in Psalm 139, If I say, surely the darkness shall fall upon me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from you, but the night shines as the day, for the darkness and the light are both alike to you. It's regrettable that David forgot that fact, for if he had taken seriously what he teaches us here, he would not have committed adultery and murder. Believe me, my beloved friends, if you and I took seriously, and I'm including myself here, if you and I took seriously, one day the fact of God's omnipresence, that we are immediately in his presence, and that he knows our every thought, hears our every word, observes our every action, our lives would be different during that day from what they normally are. We would cease our foolish levity, our unclean mirth, and silly jesting. We would take careful heed where we went and what we did. We would make sure our recreation and our amusements were free from sin. We would be more careful regarding what we read and what we watch on television. And right here I must say that I suspect that many a preacher could have saved himself from the disgrace of discovered immorality and dismissal from the ministry if he had taken seriously the fact of God's personal presence in his home and had not fallen into the tragic habit of feeding his sensual appetite by watching pornographic movies or surfing the pornographic websites on the internet late at night while his wife was asleep. If we take seriously the fact that the infinite personal God is ever with us, would we dare to sin in his presence? Would we dare to ignore his will for us? If you know he is present, then let your weaker passions dare to consent to sin, for God is there. Fourth and finally, to anyone here who is seeking to hide from God, because you suspect that he does not approve of your lifestyle. And over the years, I've known even some pastors, not to mention some Christians who were in that state of affairs. I can only say that you have to realize that it is totally, utterly irrational thinking on your part to try to hide from him or to fly from him. Where can you hide? Where can you flee? There is no place he does not see. No distant grave, no foreign place can bar you from his searching face. You cannot be obscured by night. His spirit pierces dark with light. You cannot escape him. No matter where you go, no matter how hard you try to avoid confronting him, He is there, always there. You have no privacy from him. And the only rational thing to do is to bow before his inescapable presence and to close with and to make peace with him. Well, these are only some suggestions regarding the doctrine's applicatory significance, and I'm sure you may think of others. But these are sufficient to make plain that God's attribute of omnipresence is is not an impractical bit of revealed information and that if we would be the Christians, particularly the Christian, 
pastors and teachers and Christian leaders in the church that God would have us be, we must know this doctrine both in its content and its practical implications as well. In some, we must be able really to mean it when we sing, Lord, thou hast searched me and dost know where'er I rest, where'er I go. Thou knowest all that I have planned and all my ways are in your hands. Where can I go apart from thee or whither from thy presence flee? In heaven is thy dwelling fair. In death's abode, lo, thou art there. If I the wings of morning take and far away my dwelling make, the hand that leadeth me is thine in my support, thy power divine. If, de- if deepest darkness cover me, the darkness hideth not from thee. To thee both night and day are bright. The darkness shineth as the light. God is omnipresent. We are always in his presence. Let us never forget it. Let's pray. Almighty God, the King eternal, the blessed and only potentate, the King of kings and Lord of lords who alone has immortality, who are invisible, dwelling in unapproachable light whom no man has seen or can see, who alone are wise, Tonight we worship and adore you for your perfection of omnipresence. We confess that we have not lived in accordance with your teaching about your omnipresence as faithfully as we should have. We have all too often sought out many of our own silly inventions, such as Adam did with his fig leaf apron and such as David did with his murder to hide our sins from your presence rather than to turn to you. We have all too often hewn out for ourselves broken cisterns that can hold no water to satisfy our spiritual thirst. And we have all too often turned away from you who alone are the fountain of living water. We acknowledge tonight that you have made us for yourself and that our souls are ignorant and restless until you fill them with the knowledge of your presence that alone brings eternal felicity, hope, and rest. So grant us, throughout the remainder of this night, throughout every day of the coming week, and throughout the rest of our lives, grant us that vital awareness of your presence that will keep us from sin, that will motivate us to holy living, that will encourage and console us, that will give us hope and rest. And this we pray in Jesus' glorious name. Amen.